Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I am your co-host, Ken Hellenius, sitting in my home studios in South Bend, Indiana, and sitting across from me in the virtual studios at his home in Portland, Oregon, is the world record holder for the most gallons of eggnog consumed during the holiday season, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Hello, Deacon. Hey, Ken, how you doing? I am very Yeah, well. that was a labor of love because I can't stand eggnog. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's a sign of a commitment is what that is. You yeah. know, even... I love eggs. You know, it's, 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 it's really interesting, Ken. You know, you got some people who love strawberries. Right, but don't but can't eat like a, a strawberry cream pie or something like that. Yeah, just, yeah. You know they love they love uh, apple pie, but they don't like apples. You know, just a yeah, weird yeah. thing like that. That's like me with egg. I love eggs, but, but not I don't nog. Love nog. So <laughs> it must be something in the nog then. Clearly, that uh, that just throws you <laughs> off. Right, we'll have to get our get our crack scientists on to figure out what the what's the problem. <laughs> Eggnog for me is I love it. And my my wife, Jules, my bride, she absolutely can't stand it either. And uh, for her, it's a texture <laughs> thing. You know, she also doesn't like things like Pepto-Bismol. And I think she uh, oh, thinks that Pepto-Bismol yeah. and eggnog are way too similar, you know, whereas honestly, for me, eggnog. I could drink it year round and I'm a little sad that they only sell it basically in the last quarter of the year. There's nothing more refreshing on a hot summer day after mowing the lawn. You come in, you know, uh, you towel your face off and then have a nice, cold, refreshing glass of eggnog. That to me is is where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> i don't that may be a little beyond the pale i don't know <laughs> yeah i'm like jules i i love the return though of the mcrib or something oh. like ah <laughs> uh, the mcrib i can't wait for those uh those those big mcdonald's advertising dollars uh sponsorship dollars for living stones to come in <laughs> after all i mean you're sitting literally you're talking with two of the biggest the world's biggest fans of the mcrib and yet we here we are no no uh mcdonald's advertising dollars that's okay folks contact modern day radio at any time if you want to uh, increase your sponsorship of uh, of living stones <laughs> yeah there you go <laughs> well deacon we have been having an Awesome conversation over the last couple of weeks about this new document that uh, our United States bishops passed at their November meeting, uh, really speaking about the importance of the Eucharist. And this document is entitled The Mystery of the Eucharist in the Life of the Church. And last week, we had a wonderful conversation about the Mass and how the Mass is a representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, how his sacrifice of himself brings us salvation, and how our participation at Mass is bringing us to that sacrifice. It's representing Christ's sacrifice of the cross for us. So that those graces we see and feel and touch and experience in our lives right here and right now. Uh, and so this is all part of uh, that. That was the first of three main points that are brought up in the first portion of this document on the Eucharist as a gift. 
And so we're going to continue our conversation with the second part of this, of, of uh, part one. It's called The Real Presence of Christ. And in this section, the bishops, beginning with paragraph 18, focus on how Christ is truly present in the Eucharist, uh, in the, the bread and wine that we see, touch, smell, and taste, how those are actually really Christ himself. And it's important, the bishops felt that it is important to emphasize this in in their teaching document because of the, because of the, the, honestly, the poll numbers that we saw in 2019, this Pew Research poll that said that only 30% of American Catholics understand and can articulate the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. That means that over 70% of Catholics out there don't have a full understanding of the beauty and the awesomeness of the church's teaching about the Eucharist and Christ's presence in the Eucharist, Christ's presence, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And so that's why this this teaching is here, because we need to hear it again, which is exactly what St. John Paul II talked about when he used the phrase, the new evangelization. The new evangelization is teaching those who are already catechized, those who, who already have heard it once, and re-emphasizing, re-underscoring, re-teaching us. And that's what the bishops are, are heeding that call to do right here. Yeah, and they talk. They start off by talking about the real presence of Christ. Of course, they quote from John 6, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And um, it says it is not ordinary bread or ordinary drink that we receive in the Eucharist. And as soon as I read that, my mind immediately went to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is addresses this square on. Um, what Paul's doing in the second part of chapter 11 in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, he's addressing liturgical abuse. Mm-hmm. Because there's things, I mean, look at this, I mean, look how contemporary this, this same discussion is today. There are things that are happening during the Mass that's causing division amongst the people in the church, right? Yeah. And look at us today. We have these these divisions, if you will, over ordinary form, extraordinary form, or this is happening and that. I mean, the same kind of things. But what's happening here is that um, following uh, the masses back in the early days, of course, which were celebrated in people's homes or in the catacombs. But here, uh, Paul specifically addressing uh, the liturgies that were happening in people's homes um, they were bringing food. Now, the food was for the agape meal. So, the, you know, coffee and donuts. So that goes all the way back to the <laughs> to the, the, the ancient times. Yep. So they brought food <clears throat> so that after the mass, they could have a, a, a meal. And this was especially important for the people who were poorer, because this might be their only meal for the whole day. So it was a way of showing we're all one body in Christ. Like as, as Paul said earlier, we're not, you know, it's no longer uh, rich or poor, slave or free, we're all one in Christ. So some people were eating and getting drunk during mass. That was the problem. Yeah. And he says very clearly in, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, when, when you meet together, is it not the Lord's supper that you eat? So he's making a distinction. When we meet together on Sunday, when we're gathered together as a body of Christ, it is the Lord's supper that we eat for an eating it now it describes a problem for an eating and drinking each one goes with his own meal one is hungry and another is drunk so by eating during mass 
they're taking food away from the, those who were, were going to wait to eat after mass, who are poor, and they're getting drunk during mass. Mm. He says, what? Look at verse 22. What? <laughs> I mean, how human is that? What? Do you not have, ah, do you not have your own houses to eat and drink in? So very clearly here, he's making a distinction, as the bishops say here. When we come together, it is the Lord's Supper. If you want regular food and drink, not you know, not just reg if you want regular bread and wine, stay home. You can eat that at home. But when we come here, it's the Lord's Supper. He's making a very clear distinction between regular food and the food that gives us unto eternal life in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. That is awesome because I can't tell you how many times I've read First Corinthians like that and and not kind of put that together, that there is a distinction being drawn in the very food that we eat. And that's because what we get at the Lord's Supper is unlike the food that we eat outside. And of course, you know, when we go to Mass, the host that we receive is not like any other bread in, I mean, even the physical present presentation is not like any other bread we eat outside of the uh, the Eucharistic feast, um, which actually kind of underscores this is different. It is different. It's the same ingredients. It's wheat and water and no yeast because it's unleavened bread. But, um, but yeah, that's really... Uh, Drawing that distinction and Paul saying, you know, is it not the Lord's Supper that we eat? Um, the bishops here also are making reference to the letter of St. Justin Martyr in his first apology. The St. Justin Martyr dies in 165, and he wrote a letter to the to the emperor, uh, the, the Roman emperor, who was Marcus Aurelius. And he wrote a letter to him to explain what the Christians do. And when you read the first apology of St. Justin Martyr, and we've talked about Justin in uh, previous shows, when you read Justin, what you're reading is a description of exactly what the Mass looks like in 165. And it's exactly what the Mass looks like in 2021. It is the reading of the of the the scriptures. It's the breaking of the bread. And that's what what's taking place. Uh, and so and even he in 165 said it's not ordinary food and drink that we eat. This is consecrated and becomes Christ. Yeah. And people can take a look at that uh, letter, uh, the part of the letter that Ken's talking about in the paragraph. 1345 of the catechism. Yeah. Uh, there's the, that partial letter is there. And it's it's absolutely, I mean, because it's the mass. I mean, you're looking at that, wait a minute, that's 155? We're in 2021. We're doing the same thing. That's right. It's the same, it's the same thing. You know, um, so the, again, under two beautiful expressions, right? The ordinary form and the extraordinary form. Um, and, 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 you know, to me, as long as mass is done reverently and beautifully, you know, um, yep. where the where uh, where we can really focus on the mysteries that we're talking about um, over these past few weeks, and that the bishops talk about in this uh, in document, the mystery of the Eucharist and the life of the Church. Um, you know, what what should be happening is we should be drawn into the mystery in the Holy Sacrifice of Mass. The Word and and uh, and sacrament should draw us more deeply into the heart of God, more deeply into the life of Christ bring us together more closely as the body of Christ, as a community of faith. That's what should be happening. <clears throat> and, and I think people sometimes get distracted when, for whatever reason, the Mass is not celebrated 
beautifully. And we both experienced that. Oh, so sure. many others have experienced that as well. Yep. Um, uh, but so, so I, I'm hoping that one of the fruits of this document and the fruits of our discussion about this document is that well, people have, a, a, again, a, a, a deeper appreciation and almost a, like I said, this a, a resurgence of love in their hearts for the holy sacrifice of the mass and and why things are being done at the mass and what what they mean to us and, and the connection to our life today. I think the more we can do that, the more people will be literally fed and nourished by Christ and word and sacrament. Amen. Amen. Now, last week, you, of course, walked us through the language of Christ at the Last Supper, in which he identified the bread he was holding as his flesh. Uh, you you uh, described and related your uh, chatting with a an atheist Greek uh, Greek translator who who was able to point out that when Christ said, "This is my body," he's using an absolute identification. Basically, if you're a math whiz, he was using an equals sign, so that what is on the left side of the equal sign equals what is on the right side of the of that equal sign. His flesh. And, and the bread were one and the same. And so that underscores Christ himself expressing to us, this is literally my body, uh, the, this bread that, that he's holding, and this bread that we are commanded to, to do this very action in memory of him. And that word memory means more than just think about me as you do this. No, it means to make present me when you do this. That's what happens. Um yeah, absolutely. And in paragraph 20, carrying that same theme forward, it says, how can Jesus Christ be truly present in what still appears to be bread and wine? Yeah. That is a great question. And that's an <laughs> obstacle that a lot of people can't wrap their heads around. Right. You know, like, wait a minute. It looks like bread. It smells like bread. It still tastes like bread. It's, I mean, what? What's? I mean, how can how could that be God? You know, I mean, I, I, I hear that and I drink wine for dinner. How could that <laughs> how could that same thing end up being the Christ's blood or, you know, that kind of thing? Right. So. I hear that. Uh, that very question, how can he be truly present in what still appears to be bread and wine? And my mind immediately goes to John chapter six, verse 60. Then many of his, his disciples who were listening said, this saying is hard. Who can accept it? And he goes on to say, as a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. Jesus then said to the twelve, do you also want to leave? Simon Peter answered him, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. Now, how would Simon Peter be able to say, we believe that you are the Holy One of God if they thought that what he was saying was crazy, was, well, he's just kind of speaking metaphorically, when he has repeated multiple times throughout John chapter 6 that his flesh is the, his gift to the, for the life of the world, and unless we eat that flesh, we have no life within us. So this is what I think of in this very important question. How can Jesus Christ be truly present in what still appears to be bread and wine? And the bishops, bless them and thank them for this, are not just going to leave that question hanging out there. They're going to teach <laughs> us again what it means. Yeah, so let's let's take a look at that, uh, the way the bishops outline it here. So first thing they talk about is the epiclesis. 
So the epiclesis is that part of the message. If, if, you, if you're an ordinary form, again, Latin, right, um, not the, the extraordinary form, mass in Latin, but, but Latin, right, meaning Western, right, um, in ordinary form, as opposed to like the Maronites or, or Byzantine or Syro Malabar, something like that. Uh, so we go to the mass. You notice that the, pe- the, the, during the, the priest places his hands over the chalice and he calls the Holy Spirit down. He goes, let your spirit come upon these gifts to make them holy so that they may become for us the body and blood. And he makes a sign of crossover. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's called the epiclesis. That is not, now for us, again, I, that's why I'm making the distinction here. For us in the Western church, in the ordinary form, that is not when the elements of bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, divinity of Jesus. What the priest is doing there in the epiclesis, he's calling down the Holy Spirit to be present at the altar so that when he says the words of institution, this is my body, this is my, this is my blood, what, what Christ said at the Last Supper, bread and wine become God. Now, I make that distinction because, because if you go to the Maronite or to the Byzantine, I've, and I've had the great honor and privilege of, of uh, serving as deacon at Maronite and at Ruthenian and at, uh, oh gosh, uh, what was the uh, uh, other one up in, uh, Melkite up in Canada mm-hmm. and other places. I mean, it's just, it happens, it, it, the, 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 the um, uh, transubstantiation happens um, over a period of time during that prayer. It's not at any particular point, but for us, in, in, in the in the Western ordinary form, it happens at a specific point. And and so um, that's and that's why we ring bells to draw attention to that, to those moments that these things are happening and they're really important. Um, and, and so we mean by transubstantiation, so trans means across and sub, substance means nature. So the very essence of what bread is and what wine is no longer exists. Well, all that exists, the body, blood, soul, divinity of Jesus, but the accidents, in other words, what the fact that it still looks like bread, tastes like bread, looks and tastes like wine, and, and they still have the effects. So if you consume a piece of bread, you know, it, it has an effect, because it, it, you, know, you consume the Eucharist, so it has the effect of what bread has on you, or you drink the precious blood, it still has the effect in your body of what wine would have mm-hmm. but the 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 substance and of what that is is actually gone all that is there is Christ and you are receiving the grace of Christ when you receive those sacraments you know and this is kind of a, it, it's interesting we in order to explain it have to we have to resort to philosophical terms in yeah. a sense i mean mm-hmm. you know substance accidents you know things like that but it's amazing how throughout history the 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 faithful the the average person in the pew may not be able to articulate those that language um and we didn't even really use that language as a church until until you know the 1200s or so mm-hmm. you know um and saint thomas aquinas kind of gives us the fullest kind of explication of the transubstantiation in those terms substance and accidents but yet the average person in the pew, the average person receiving the Eucharist, especially those who are we would call mystics, they understand and can feel and articulate in other language 
the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and that true communion with the Trinity that they receive in the Eucharist without necessarily a day's uh, education on substance, accidents, and, and transubstantiation. They knew it and understood it because they experienced it. And that's a faith that I don't want to call simple in, in a way that is in any way denigrating. No, it's more profound than philosophical language can be, really, as well. You know? No, it's that beautiful childlike faith that Jesus talks about. Yep. You know, unless you be, be like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about being childish, right? but that childlike faith, right? So I may not understand what transubstantiation means, but I know that when the priest says those words, that, that, that bread and wine is God now. That's right. You see, that's the kind of faith we're talking about. And we can only sometimes as human beings talk about these realities by analogy. So, for example, um, if you will, what do you mean by acts, substance, and accidents? Think, think of a convert, a friend of yours, or maybe even yourself. You know, you you were away from the church. You you didn't believe in God. You you didn't believe in anything. You were just living for yourself, or like Saint Augustine, right? Mm-hmm. So then he has this profound encounter with Christ that changes the entire course and direction of his life, and that may have happened to you, like it happened to my dad. I mean, complete, but but. If you take a DNA test 20, 30 years ago, and then after the person has transformation, you take, the, you take another blood test, it's the same person. Right. So the, <laughs> the accident, right, that the fact that they're still the same person is there, but, but now who they are, how they act, how they orient their lives, how they live is completely changed. Yes. See? So the substance, if, if you, again— just by analogy here, the substance, if you will, of who that person is, is different, but they're still the same person. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. See, so I mean, so I, 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 I'm just trying to try to trying to find a helpful way to understand this, this language of substance and accidents, again, only by analogy um, of, of how you could be changed, but still be the same. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who was it? Theseus's ship where all of the. All of the uh, uh, boards are different over over you know a seven year period. Every board has been replaced, yet it's still the ship of Theseus, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Or or as you said, you know, over a seven year period, every one of the cells in your body is replaced, but yet I'm you're still Deacon Harold. I mean, there's no question there. But the because the accidents are are in that case, the accidents are different, but the substance is the same. We're talking about the reverse of that in the Eucharist. The accidents are the same, but the substance is re- is replaced. Trans. I mean, it's transubstantiation. The substance has been changed. Um, paragraph. Yeah, so it's not. Yeah. So so we have to be clear what we're talking about here. We're not talking about transsignification, where the Correct. significance of what bread and wine is is changed. No. That's not that's not what we're talking about here. It's not just oh during the mass it be, it becomes significant, but in after mass it just goes back to being bread and wine again, or you know um, what's another one? Transsignification. There's um, consubstantiation. The, yeah, consubstantiation where um, uh, the bread and water also uh, bread and wine still exist, but so yes. does Christ. Yeah, in that. yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That yeah. that can't that can't happen. So no. so they both exist together. Yeah. Yeah, right. So that see, this is why the philosoph- philosophical language that Aquinas used, barring from Aristotle, 
uh, is important because so we can avoid errors in our thinking, like consubstantiation, where, where the, the bread and wine and the body blood supposed to be both exist at the same time. It can't. That's like I think it's breaking the first commandment. We're we're we're, we're worshiping bread and wine, right? Exactly. That's, that's idolatry. Yeah. It's worse than a graven image because it's not even. It still just looks like a piece of bread rather than something that looks like a saint might. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and in Jesus, we talk about the words. He says, this is my body, not this This exists along with my body. I mean, he's very right. clear right. On, on what he articulates there. And, what, and, and so we have to follow what Jesus says. So all we're trying to do is, is find language to articulate the reality of what Jesus himself is speaking of in the, in the Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels. Amen. Now, when we talk about the real presence at the Eucharist, uh, paragraph 21 goes on to say, um, though Christ is present to us in many ways in the liturgy, including in the assembly gathered, the presiding minister, and the word proclaimed, the church also clearly affirms that the mode of Christ's presence under the Eucharistic species is unique. In other words, so St. Paul VI wrote, you know, this presence is called real not to exclude the idea that the others are real too, but rather to indicate presence par excellence because it is substantial. And through it, Christ becomes present whole and entire God and man. It is Christ who is present in the Eucharist in a way that is beyond even are, you know, us being the body of Christ as community. And so that is why we call the Eucharist the real presence, uh, even though he's also present in these other ways, because we can see, touch, and taste him in the Eucharist proper. Um, and so that's why I think it's such a, a beautiful image that we also emphasize Christ's real presence in the Eucharist. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, just a, a short, interesting little fact here. Um, the, the word real presence is actually not um, a Catholic word. You know, really? I mean, the, 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 the understanding of real presence actually comes from an Anglican theologian. Um, and I have his, I was trying to look for it. A, 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 there's a two volume work that he wrote where he used the word real presence, um, where we get our understanding of real presence from as, uh, as Catholics. So uh, just a little factoid there. I love that. That's awesome. Well, um, there's a little more to say about the real presence here uh, in this in this section, but Deacon, we've actually kind of come to the end of our time for tonight. And so we're going to pick up uh, this last little bit on the real presence when we gather together next week here on Living Stones. In the meantime, we do invite you to connect with us via Facebook. We are uh, on Facebook. Just type in Living Stones Media. You can find a link to this document that we've been talking about, the mystery of the Eucharist in the life of the church, as well as you can uh, see some fun videos. And uh, you can also download previous episodes of the show at materdeiradio.com. But Deacon, until we gather next week together, might we have a blessing? Sure. May Almighty God bless you and keep you and protect you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I radio.com.